Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. We are recording this the day after the New Hampshire primary, which Bernie Sanders won. It's the second state in a row that Bernie has won after he won Iowa by 6,000 votes. And we didn't really have a full conversation about what happened in the lead up to Iowa's caucuses because the entire conversation ended up being about what happened during and after the caucuses. And what happened during and after the caucuses were numerous maddening procedural problems uh, that became a real embarrassment for the Iowa Democratic Party and totally coincidentally uh, entirely seemed to hurt Bernie Sanders and help his opponents. And that was the entire narrative that came out of the caucuses. It was one of confusion and incompetence and conspiracy theorizing. And who won wasn't clear to many people and actually seemed secondary to the bigger story of all of the incompetence. And how they won was barely being discussed at all. And that's a real shame for Sanders. Not only because he deserved the momentum coming out of Iowa, but because his campaign did incredible organizing among working class communities, communities of color and immigrant communities throughout the state. That organizing has received some attention, especially by publications like The Intercept, who's done great reporting on it. But that organizing hasn't received enough attention. So I talked to Sean Goody, associate editor at Jacobin and a native Iowan, who went back to Iowa multiple times in the lead-up to the caucuses and on the day of the caucuses itself to report on them for Jacobin in an article at jacobinmag.com called Bernie Sanders' Multiracial Working Class Base Was on Display in Iowa. Now, I know that by the time you're listening to this, Iowa will probably seem like ancient history, but the organizing that Sean describes in that piece, and which we discuss in this podcast, is worth learning about, because if we're going to achieve anything remotely worthy of the name political revolution in this country, the kind of organizing tactics that we saw the Sanders campaign engage in in Iowa will be a very key part of it. So here's Sean Goody. Sean, hello. Hello. It's your big Jacobin podcast debut. You're a long-standing Jacobin staffer, and this is your first time on the podcast. Glad to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you are a native son of Iowa. That's where you're from. And you went to Iowa to report this story and to write about what was going on with the Bernie Sanders campaign there. It's a real shame for multiple reasons that we had to endure this bizarre days long spectacle of, you know, everything insane that was going on with the Iowa democratic party, the shadow app wrangling over who actually won the thing. when it's clear that Bernie Sanders was the winner. Uh, And it's a shame for multiple reasons. Obviously for Bernie, Bernie would have preferred to have a clear narrative. that's like he won and then leave Iowa with that momentum. But it's also true that I think if we were not having all these discussions about the shenanigans, we would have had much more of a national conversation about what was unique and pretty amazing about what the Bernie Sanders campaign did in Iowa. And you were there in Iowa reporting on some of these things. Uh, So let's just start with what you saw there that you write about in the article. What were you doing there? Where were you and what were you seeing? Yeah, so I was mostly in Muscatine, which is a, a river town on the, the banks of the Mississippi River, um, and then Atumwa as well, which is in central Iowa. Um, both are 
pretty working class cities. Um, for by Iowa standards, both are are pretty diverse. Um, I think it's something about fif- between fifteen and twenty percent Hispanic in in both um, both cities. And so both also had um, what they called satellite caucuses, which was a new thing this year. And the the idea was to make it easier for quote unquote non traditional voters to um, to be able to caucus. And so what we saw was a pretty amazing amazing display, um, that, which was the result of uh, you know lots of lots of hard organizing by uh, by the Sanders campaign. But both of those locations. You saw immigrant workers turning out in pretty high numbers and just delivering overwhelming support to uh, to, to Bernie. Yeah, I was in Iowa in Muscatine twice for two weekends uh, because I speak Spanish, and so we had been asked to go to Muscatine because there's a large Spanish-speaking population there, and we got there to this small town. I don't know how many people live in Muscatine. It's not very many, but the Sanders campaign had at least two Spanish-speaking staffers there. And when I got there the first time, this is probably true of any political campaign, but it's especially true of the Bernie Sanders campaign. You're amazed at encountering people in these places like Muscatine who are just throwing their entire lives into the, the campaign of somebody who who they, they believe in so much. And so when we got to Muscatine, the campaign was being run out of this woman's garage she had these not me us boots that mm-hmm. she had hand painted uh had kids running around the garage but the camp campaigning was being run out of the garage and the two spanish-speaking staffers were there uh and, and it was a guy carlos rojas uh was one of them who we at jacobin had interviewed just a couple months ago because he got up and confronted joe biden at a campaign event mm-hmm. about deportations and he was the one who i think if memory serves me the first one who biden told to go vote for somebody else i think he said go vote for bernie uh or he, he said you know don't vote for him he's like i'm not your candidate yeah uh, because the guy was was uh confronting him about deportations and uh it's very telling that that is what biden said and that the bernie campaign then hired him uh, immediately but yeah we were out on the doors and the people who i were, was talking to in muscatine were like slaughterhouse and packing house workers, uh, lots of monolingual Spanish speakers, people from Mexico and El Salvador. Yeah. Uh, and it was something that was not being done by any other campaign in Muscatine or seemingly anywhere else in Iowa, right? Yeah, I mean, there's been um, a lot of good reporting on this at this point, both before um, before the caucus and after the caucus about the kind of effort that it took to actually turn out um, voters. So in uh, Ottumwa, it's been pretty well reported at this point. Um, that that caucus site went 14 to 1 um, in favor of Bernie. The one person was a Warren uh, organizer, um, so literally paid by Warren to be there. Well, which, <laughs> this person was paid to work for Warren ostensibly to turn people out for the for the caucus and then she's the only one who shows anyway we shouldn't talk about her too much but i just thought that was a little strange just makes well, me, it was it was i mean it was interesting when i first got there um because you know everyone was sort of clumped together sitting down um i saw you know she had like warren stuff on and i sort of assumed like there were people around her so i sort of assumed that bernie had the majority but warren probably you know warren had a paid organizer there probably turned out like four or five people or something like that and then um, the chair, the person that was chairing the the caucus, 
was like, okay, uh, now split and go to your preferred candidate. And the whole room got up and just went to Bernie's corner. And it was, it was a pretty amazing moment. Cause these were, um, these were workers, uh, basically all immigrant workers from all over the world. Um, this is the first voting site, right? The one that was, got a lot yeah. of attention who were, uh, Ethiopian workers yep. as well as I think, uh, Honduran and Macedonian. Yeah, some a, a lot of a lot of African workers um, from different parts of Africa. They work at the local slaughterhouse, um, at the, the packing house. Our you know very own Megan Day did a great piece um, that came out um, either later um, later that day or maybe the the next day on the kind of organizing that it took. And Bernie people were waiting outside the factory, the factory doors to um, to talk to talk to these workers and. Then, then followed up and made house visits to, uh, to make sure that they turned out. So it was, it was really kind of importing the sort of organizing tactics that are, you know, if you're a community organizer, you're a labor organizer. These are, you know, very well known tactics, and it's something that you're like well schooled in. But it's certainly not something that you typically see in a, in a presidential campaign. So, sort of, I mean, the seeing uh, seeing that there and the sort of support that he was drawing. Um, was really powerful, and then and then as like more reporting came out, um, and you know I talked to some of the workers there as well. It was just like pretty incredible sight to see. You brought up Otoma, so let's talk about Otoma for a second. Uh, yeah. You open your piece with an anecdote from 1937 labor history in Iowa mm-hmm. when the CIO was organizing uh, meatpacking workers and. I, Otumwa, I assume, is like a lot of towns throughout the uh, Midwest, small towns where uh, there were other kinds of meatpacking and slaughterhouses uh, that became a sort of home for militant unionism, like really incredible stories of tiny towns in Minnesota or yeah. South Dakota or Iowa uh, where they like literally the entire towns were organized around these these militant CIO unions. Um, this is in Otumwa, uh, the the town where these uh, Ethiopian and other immigrant workers uh, would then cast this vote for Bernie Sanders. So it's right. this sort of poetic uh, poetic anecdote to tell because it shows how you know the the Bernie Sanders campaign has talked about running a campaign that is you know of and for the working class, mm-hmm. and of course we know how that gets sort of smeared and and lied about as oh Bernie Sanders only cares about like, kowtowing to you know, reactionary white working class workers or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the changes in Atumwa and the changes of the composition of the working class in Atumwa, yeah, uh, and and the and then the the campaign turning out who is now the working class of a time these ethiopian and honduran immigrants i mean that is what it means to run a a campaign that is uh, about and for and and by the working class right is it is focusing on these workers like these ethiopian meat packers uh and and it it tracks the changes in the working class that have happened in towns like otomwa over time right absolutely yeah i mean i wanted to I wanted to sort of put in some sort of historical context um, because, you know, Iowa is a, is a mostly white rural state. Um, but there is like, you know, it, it is it's less white than I think people people realize. And especially in, in certain parts of the state, some some parts of the state are still incredibly white. I mean, you, you can um, I grew up in central Iowa in Des Moines, which for Iowa is relatively diverse. And, you know, the high school I went to was very diverse. But um, there are 
parts of the state that, you know, um, small town Iowa, 98% white or something like that. Um, but at the same time, there are like largely because of um, not, it's not like every, every immigrant worker is working in meatpacking, but meatpacking was, um, there was this, there was a structural shift within meatpacking that brought a lot of, uh, ended up bringing a lot of immigrants in and they sort of became the, the archetypal, um, um, packing house worker. Whereas in, in the thirties, it was in places like Ottumwa, it was, um, it was all white. Um, by the, now I think, um, I think total there, I think the, uh, Latino population in Iowa, something like 6%, um, but in places like Ottumwa and Muscatine, um, it's 15 or 20 percent. Some places um, it's even higher than that, uh, 30 even, you know, upwards of uh, 50 percent in some places. So, yeah, it, it's I think it's I, I wanted to give it some historical context because I think that's just important for understanding any place, really. But um, but I also wanted to I think it sort of serves as a corrective to to like people's um misconceptions about iowa because it is really remarkable that um even even in still in a relatively white state like uh like iowa um bernie was able to assemble this uh multiracial working class base Uh, right you just look at the numbers and it's very clear that that that's like sort of his his natural constituency um is the multiracial working class. Yes, that was the next thing I was going to ask you because, uh, you know, we see in the way that the campaign was run who they were making their pitch to that it was a working class that was made up of uh, Honduran and Ethiopian immigrants and uh, Nepalese immigrants. And, and, you know, they were making their pitch to those workers. Um, But not only did they, the campaign, make their pitch uh, to them like they those work those voters those that those demographics of voters actually did turn out for Sanders and there were numbers that you cite in your article that were incredible about uh, enormous support uh, according to exit polls about who it was that supported Bernie yeah so overall I mean the overall numbers are pretty striking um, and then I'll get into the the numbers for um, for Latino voters which are pretty stunning um, but overall, the ex- exit polls show that um, Bernie won 38 percent of non-white caucus goers. Uh, the next closest was Biden, um, 21 points lower than that. So he was at 17 percent. Uh, Bernie was at 38 percent among non-white voters. Um, and then among uh, caucus goers with a household income under 50,000, he won 32 percent of those. And then um, for those under 25,000, he won 43%. I mean, that's incredible. That is incredible. And it's like, given that this is a five, essentially a five person race, um, you know, if, if, if it was, uh, you know, if he was against, um, if he was just, uh, facing off against one person, those numbers would obviously be uh, much higher. Um, but he has a, like a very clear, uh, plurality, um, in these sort of demographic categories and sort of, it's it's unfortunate that we in the U.S. we don't really have a great um, way to 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 uh, to sort of quantify class. So we have to use like income and stuff as a proxy. But it's like very it's very clear that um, that he did incredibly well among um, among non-white working class voters. 
there was a, US, a UCLA study that just came out last week that was looking at um, how well Sanders did among um, Latino voters. Uh, so he won 52% of the vote in the top 32 high-density Latino caucus locations, and he won 67% in majority Latino caucus sites. I mean, this is this is pretty incredible, um, especially... I mean, I think I think we've sort of gotten over this this kind of like white Bernie bro myth. Um, but if if anyone needs if if anyone needs to to be dispelled of that sort of notion, um, they should they should uh, look at these numbers because they're 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 pretty incredible. Well, something tells me that your admonishment to <laughs> just go look at the numbers will not be heeded by uh, the uh, bad faith critics of Bernie Sanders. I'd like to be wrong, but uh, I mean those numbers reflect obviously both the organic support for Bernie Sanders of Latino and Spanish speaking people, but. They also reflect the fact that the campaign actually, you know, you, people don't turn out to vote for you if you don't have an operation that is designed to turn them out to vote. Yeah, and, absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned, I was in, I went to Muscatine twice and I was, these are the doors that I was knocking on. And maybe the most amazing experience that I had was uh, knocking on the door of an older woman who was in her maybe late 60s, maybe even early 70s, who she and her husband were Salvadoran immigrants who had come to the United States in 1980 right after the Salvadoran Civil War started, which Salvadoran Civil War, of course, was a war in which uh, it was between uh, leftist guerrillas and a Salvadoran government that was entirely propped up by the United States uh, and couldn't have survived if it wasn't for the backing from the United States, which went up to a million dollars a day at one point during the Civil War. Uh, there was a there was a quasi fascist, just bl- you know, blood drenched regime. Um, some of the worst human rights atrocities ever committed in the Western Hemisphere took place in El Salvador in the 1980s, and that was the reason why this woman had moved first to California and then to Iowa. Uh, and she's telling me all this, sitting there in her in her living room with her husband, uh, and she had heard some about Bernie before I had knocked on her door. She was pretty positive, thinking towards Bernie. Um, but when she told me this history of coming to the United States because of the Salvadoran Civil War, and I told her about Bernie's history uh, in Burlington as mayor, using his position as mayor to oppose the U.S. intervention in El Salvador, literally holding protests and educational events uh, against the U.S. intervention in El Salvador at City Hall in Burlington. She didn't know any of that history, and she thought it was incredible. And she and and her husband were uh, completely pumped up to uh, go caucus for for Bernie, which they uh, signed caucus commit cards assuring me they would do. And this is an important point to bring up because – I think a sort of political hack type could look at this and say, oh, wow, okay, this is the key. We need to be making a pitch to Latino immigrant voters and, and other kinds of immigrants and people of color uh, and working class people. That's the that's the key to you know winning going forward or whatever. But the only reason that that worked for Bernie Sanders in Iowa is because he has an actual history that you could point to that is like this guy's political record is is – nearly unvarnished on working class 
issues and and even on most foreign policy issues. Like if you were not using your city hall in the 1980s to fight the Salvadoran uh, U.S. intervention in El Salvador, you can't make the pitch to the Salvadoran immigrant about how you're good on on you know U.S. intervention in El Salvador. Like if you are not always fighting for the working class, then you can't make that pitch the credible pitch to working class voters uh, that you're going to fight for them. Um, so I I say that just to make sure that. The lesson that some that some people take from this is not just that you have to appeal to those people; it's that you have to have a record that is fighting yeah. for the working class and for immigrants and all those folks, and then you can make that appeal to them. Yeah, and you, you also just have to organize too. I mean, it, it's not it's not just a matter of going on the airwaves and like putting out lots of ads. I mean, obviously Sanders does that as well, but you do have to have to organize people to to to, to get out, um, especially in a. Um, Especially in sort of a high barrier um, event like uh, like the the Iowa caucuses, it, it is hard to convince people, especially the the sort of voters that Bernie is trying to reach and has reached uh, relatively successfully. Um, it's hard to convince people uh, to to turn out to vote when um, you know basically their whole lives, uh, you know, politicians. Uh, tell them that their their lives are going to be better if they if they vote for for this person, um, and then you know nothing really changes. <laughs> the kind of apathy of the American uh, voter, especially um, poor and working class people, it's pretty justified. Um, and so it is like a hard pitch to make, um, and uh, especially when when you're trying to to turn people out to a caucus where they have to. They have to go somewhere and, um, you know, they, there's this arcane process that, you know, the the party itself <laughs> doesn't really even understand. Right. Um, and then you're, you're trying to convince people to, to come out to that and spend, you know, two hours of their time, maybe even three hours at, at some of the at some of the big precincts. Um, it's it's a it's a difficult pitch to make. So it is pretty incredible what what bernie was able to do in iowa yeah and you write about this in the piece uh and this is also my experience on the doors uh about certainly talking to people who did who had that sentiment exactly what you're talking about i talked to lots of people who uh well, some people who would just tell me that they didn't vote and it wasn't in a way they were like ashamed of it or something it was like you like pepsi i like coke right like right. you vote i don't vote yeah um and so they just had no trust that uh that politics could do anything for their lives, that there was, that there was any way that lives they have no, they have no evidence that conceiving of yourself as like an actual political agent, someone that can, you know, band together with other people, um, and like organize collectively and, and act politically that they have really no evidence that that actually works. There's, there's very few examples, um, in recent American history where, um, you know, people have, uh, voted for a candidate, um, or you know, even Obama, who 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 uses kind of like movement rhetoric, he very clearly wasn't committed to it. He um, uh, both both in his the policies that he ended up um, pursuing, and and also just like completely um, getting rid of uh, organizing for for America after he was elected. So yeah, there's there's just very little evidence uh for most people that it it even it even matters right i'm going to read part of your article here 
part of the reason for the smaller caucus crowds, that is the crowds that came out to vote in the Iowa caucuses, is that many would-be voters have a bad case of jaundice, and justifiably so. After the soaring rhetoric and crushing reality of Obama, after the quadrennial promises of prosperity and decent programs, why should ordinary people believe that Sanders, unlike every other presidential candidate in recent decades, will actually wrest power and resources away from the haves and give it to the have-nots? For these voters, and there are millions of them, Sanders will likely have to be in the White House enacting aggressive pro-worker measures before they consider dropping their well-earned skepticism. Energizing them will be the real work of the political revolution and the key to fundamentally realigning the political system a la 1932 or 1980. I mean, that point about Obama is so true because you do – I mean, on on the doors, again, I had that sense of these people giving me this sort of stink eye about like, what I'm trying to sell them on is basically what they were sold on with Obama in right. 2008 and right. 2012. And uh, their hopes were raised really high. I mean, Iowa delivered for Obama yeah. in 2008, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, and the, that sense of the possibility of, of political transformation, of the, you know, the hope and the yes, we can and all of that. I mean, it was raised really high and then it was smashed. And you, you definitely had people, the sense from people that they were like, a, you know, uh, they didn't want to fall in love again to get their heart broken again or something like that. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, and I think that's probably true around the country. And you, you point out that, yeah, that if Bernie's going to have success, a lot of those people will have to be won over after he gets into the White House uh, because they're not going to they're going to have to see it to believe it if they're uh, going to get involved in any kind of politics again after uh you know, having low expectations to begin with, having those expectations raised, and then having them shattered under Obama. Right. Yeah. I mean, if I, I pointed this out in the piece, I mean, if if you can, there's there was a lot of good news that came out of Iowa. Uh, good news that, as as you mentioned before, like the San, the campaign and his supporters should should have been able to celebrate. Um, but there was, I mean, turnout was um, on the order of. Uh, 2016 rather than 2008 which was like the record setting year um so he the composition of of the uh the voters that turned out especially for sanders um was exactly this kind of multiracial working class base at the same time turnout was not up um across the board at least i guess turnout was up among among young voters um i think sanders is probably he is aware of this um I think I included in there, like there was, um, there was a reporter, Ryan Grimm, that asked him the next day about turnout, and he, Sanders said, "Yeah, I wish it would have been higher." And so he he certainly knows um, that this is going to be a it's going to be a struggle, um, but I think the that we can we can be heartened by the um, by the voters he was able to turn out, and the yeah the composition of voters because it is. It is much better if you sort of care about transforming the the country, um, democratizing the country. That the working class is is at the foundation of his base. So right, and then you end the piece gesturing towards that and saying that you know even if the numbers the turnout wasn't as high as we had hoped it was, uh, what we saw the Sanders campaign do in Iowa something that I don't think any of us were. Even those of us who followed this closely, we didn't know that this is what was going to happen uh, in Iowa. What we saw there are the kinds of the kind of a seed of an alternative, a political alternative, like how we can do politics 
differently in this country. Um, it also is uh, – <laughs> it, it gets me sort of uh, nervous in a new way because – you know, we talked about how Obama raised people's hopes and then kind of smashed them. Uh, Sanders is is kind of doing all of this over again, and it puts a big weight on his shoulders and on our shoulders, those of us who are who, who do make up the the this kind of political revolution that he uh, is saying he wants to fight for. Because if we can't deliver, what's going to happen to these people who who have yet again had their political hopes and aspirations? shattered it's a it's it's a it's a bleak uh, picture of what that future could look like so it, it's both a picture of an alternative uh, and and uh it, it it puts a new level of responsibility on our shoulders i think yeah i mean the stakes are very high um i do think that uh it's going to be difficult if if sanders can't pull this off um it's going to be difficult to uh to imagine um the left wanting to to put um, their time and resources and energy into uh, t- into a presidential campaign for for a while, um, but it is. I mean, it it is at the same time. It's like a historic opportunity, and we have to we have to take advantage of it. And if there is going to be a real political alternative that comes through electoral politics, it's going to be built exactly this way. Yeah, absolutely. We're, uh, building uh, support. And, and organizing and mobilizing people uh, at the working class level. Uh, and, you know, hopefully you get the you get the Ethiopian meat packers on board to caucus for Bernie Sanders. And hopefully under President Bernie Sanders, they will be uh, striking for Bernie Sanders or engaging in all other kinds of grassroots working class self-activity, right? Yeah, I mean, he he's going to – in office, he's going to face a lot of uh, – a lot of hurdles he's going to be he's going to have to confront the his own um the party that he that he's caucus with the democratic party and he's going to have to confront um the business class of the country it's it's a very good thing that he's been able to uh sort of assemble and and put forth this this class politics because it's the very same class politics um that he's going to have to sort of mobilize to um to uh, to take on the the kind of billionaire class in office too, you know. While you're here, we should talk about your article uh, from several issues back in Jacobin, where uh, you I think it was called uh, "You Can Have Debs or You Can Have Brandeis," and you were yeah. talking about the difference between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren as candidates, and Warren has done pretty poorly in both uh, Iowa and uh, especially New Hampshire last night. Yeah. Um, and so I don't want to seem like we're sort of rubbing salt in her wounds here. Um, but the stuff that you describe in your article from Iowa is exactly the kind of uh, the details about what is unique about the Sanders campaign, what sets it apart from uh, a candidacy like Elizabeth Warren's and, a, and a, the future, the, the present and future candidacies of other similar, like liberal minded reformers who want to make, make some tweaks to the system, some tweaks that are desperately needed, but don't view the basically the working class as the agent of change uh, as the right. same way that the Sanders uh, campaign did. And so I think that the lessons from what we're, we, we just talked about, about what the Sanders campaign did in Iowa, are going to have to be used by 
other candidates who see themselves as like in the vein of a Bernie Sanders uh, in the future and, and, and recognize that difference between uh, the, the strategy, which is a more traditional electoral strategy of somebody like an Elizabeth Warren versus the strategy of what uh, Bernie Sanders did in Iowa. And we saw how that paid off for uh, his campaign and, and we saw how her strategy has not quite panned out for her. Yeah, um, the, yeah, that that piece that you reference, um, I tried to try to draw this uh, distinction between um, between uh, Warren and Sanders by using a sort of historical analogy, and I analogize um, I analogize Sanders to uh, to Eugene Debs, the great uh, the great socialist leader, labor leader of the early twentieth century, and then I analogize. Um, Elizabeth Warren to Louis Brandeis, who was Eugene Debs' contemporary, um, pretty well-known kind of trust-busting uh, lawyer, um, progressive. And so they, they come from different political traditions. I think, I, could, I mean, I could go into like the sort of ideological differences, but on a political level, um, yeah, they do, they do have, uh, you know, very different ways of, um, of conceiving of politics. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is uh, she's very skilled at at um, at sort of fighting for regulatory changes. She did it. I mean, she did it in the Obama administration. Um, she's someone that uh, I think we certainly uh, on the socialist left we certainly want to have her on her side, and she would be a very good uh, person to have in a Sanders ca- cabinet. I, I think she'd be a very good Treasury Secretary. Um, with all that said, yeah, I mean, I. Uh, it is clear that she doesn't, like you said, she doesn't see the working class as the sort of political agent that that can um, that can that can transform the country. She's not like some elitist technocrat or anything. I wouldn't caricature her, but she does she does sort of see the um, progressive change or 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 left sort of social change coming through regulatory channels and white papers and stuff rather than um, rather than mobilizing. Um, and organizing the working class in the way that um, that Sanders does, and it's it is pretty it, it's striking because um, again he is importing uh, tactics from labor and community organizing um, traditions and stuff, and that's something. Um, yeah, I mean a lot of a lot of uh, the staffers in Iowa were um, were literally former labor organizers or, or community organizers. Um, and so they they actually like understand how to um, how to do politics in this way, and that's just like the sort of common sense. Oh, you know, we we have to um, we we have to stand at the factory doors, and we have to talk yeah, to workers. 1 a.m., yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's not about um, you know putting a bunch of TV ads on and like right. hoping that people um, uh, flock to your campaign. Well, and again, just to repeat the point, the only way that you can like you you can't just import union organizing tactics like that for any old candidate you won't find people who are willing who are true believers i mean i remember there was a story that came out right before the uh story about what the sanders campaign was doing in uh, places like Otomwa, you know this the the secret agent stuff that is what uh, a lot of union drives end up looking like you know being at the factory gates at 1 a.m and all of that stuff uh there was a story that came out right around the same time that was about a uh leaked some texts from a biden staffer who uh, after uh you know demanding that her 
staffers drive through unsafe weather in Iowa through snowstorms uh, said at the very end of her text stream, every day is an audition for post Iowa. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, right. that's yeah. the kind of people who are drawn to the the Biden campaign is yeah. like somebody out of Veep or something. And then sure. and then there were the true believers from Bernie who, you know, sacrificing sleep and whatever else and using those union or- organizer tactics. And many of them people who had little or no experience in electoral politics. Like, as you said, they were union organizers or some of them weren't even staffers. They were people who were rank and file union activists, some people who were who were carrying out what we call the rank and file strategy, people who were trying to transform their unions and transform the labor movement as rank and file members. And they then got, had this opportunity. That, like, the, the fact that the Bernie Sanders campaign chose to bring that people, those kind of people, into the campaign to work on work on the campaign really says a lot about uh, the campaign. But it, but again, like you can't have that kind of strategy if you don't have a candidate who that kind of organizer, that kind of rank and file union activist actually believes in. Um, and I'm I assume that as the uh, primaries and caucuses go on, we're going to continue to see a lot of that kind of uh, organizing tactics by Sanders, and we'll probably going to see more and more data that continues to disprove this myth about who it is that the Bernie Sanders campaign is appealing to, uh, and it is exactly the kind of uh, of. A multiracial working class that you write about very beautifully uh, and very movingly uh, in your piece. Yeah, I I think it's clear that this is his base. I think there are some commentators. We might actually sort of ironically see a turn where um, whether at at this point it's clear that uh, the white sort of white Bernie bro myth is 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 a myth, um, and that the data just doesn't back it up. Um, so we might sort of see a turn where it's sort of taken for granted that like this is Sanders's base, um, and then like you know pundits are are like, well, yeah, of course he he wins the multiracial working class, but can he expand beyond that? I I sort of think that <laughs> that might be where we're going. Um, we'll see. Well, <laughs> it's I, a good problem to have. Yeah, that's for a real us. good problem to have. I'd love to hear the uh, the spin uh, from Chris Matthews or whoever yes. about how it's a problem that there's too many Mexican immigrant meat packers and you know these are the brown shirts that Chuck Todd <laughs> yeah, exactly. warned us about <laughs> well Sean uh, thank you so much thank you you can listen to other episodes of the vast majority as well as our other Jacobin podcasts at Jacobin Radio on iTunes Stitcher and Spotify Please do rate and review us as that really makes a difference in people finding us. And we don't ask you for any money on this show, but it's definitely not free. So please subscribe to Jacobin at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. Buy Jacobin swag at our online store. Subscribe to our journal Catalyst or do whatever else that involves giving us money. Please and thank you.